We're starting a new series today about what the Bible has to say about politics and government. What I'm going to spend most of my time on this morning is supporting the notion that this is a valid topic because in our era we have all been taught that religion and politics don't mix. But the reality is, both philosophically, biblically, and historically, that religion and politics are in fact completely and totally inseparable. So let's just look at these two words, politics and religion. The word politics is derived from a Greek word which means of, for, or relating to citizens. It's a pretty broad word, of, for, or relating to citizens. With particular emphasis on the notions of influencing and organizing. So politics is nothing more than how citizens interact with one another and relate to one another and how they influence one another. That's what politics is. We all are involved in politics every day. Now, we don't tend to think of it that way, but I believe the reason is because of the connotation of the word. It's a bit like the word lust. The word lust means to have an intense, passionate desire for something. And we're told in Galatians 5 that the Spirit lusts for us. Well, the Spirit lusts for us for very good reasons. The Spirit has a passionate desire that we would follow God for our best interest. But we tend to always think of lust as a negative connotation. Why? That's that's what we mostly do, right? We lust for the wrong things, yeah. Well, it's the same thing with politics. Politics is just how people organize, how people influence one another. But we tend to have politics turn out to do bad things to us when we notice it. The reality is, though, influencing and organizing goes on all the time. We typically don't call that politics, but it fits within the definition. Religion, on the other hand, is a system of beliefs, cultural systems, and worldviews related to humanity to an order of existence. A system of beliefs, cultural systems, and worldviews related to humanity to an order of existence. So religion is basically the beliefs around which we organize. That's what religion is. So if politics is people in a vicinity organizing and influencing one another, and religion is the beliefs and the worldviews upon which that organizing will happen, you can see how these two things are totally inseparable. Well, how is it in our culture that we've gotten the notion that you're supposed to keep them separate? Religion and politics don't mix. This would have been a, a very odd and even bizarre notion for all of human history let's say before a hundred years ago. If you think back in human history, the king is always seeking to be the head of the church or to be worshipped himself or herself. Or if there's a separation of powers between the church or the religious order that's dominant and the state, there's always an alliance of some sort that's being made. And when there's not, there's great conflict. And that's always been the case. Well, where did we get this notion that religion and politics don't mix? I submit to you, the reason we think that is because of the immense influence Marxism has had on our culture. Marxism's overriding genius is tinkering with and revising definitions. They are awesome at it. They'll take a word that has some real positive connotation 
some immense vesting of emotional content and just steal that word, completely redefine it, ride that emotion and, and that positive connotation until they've driven it off the cliff and then go grab another word. And what they've done with the word religion is they've defined it as something that doesn't mix with politics. It is that which people do that shouldn't mix with politics. And now they're moving it, it is that which should not mix with any other aspect of life. Uh, If you'll notice, in our culture, the terminology's shifting from freedom of religion, which is something we've always had in America, and they're now saying freedom of worship. Well, guess what that means? It means that religion and life don't mix. So we start with religion and politics don't mix. We're heading into religion and life don't mix. So, well, I I can't do this action because it violates my principles. Mm, No, no, not going to allow that. You're going to jail if you do that. You can go into your private closet or your private little place and say that. But once you walk out the door, it doesn't mix anymore. That's the world in which we live. Well, the Bible has no such notion. And Marxism, as genius as it is, all this is based on a belief, a cultural system, and a worldview, which is a religion. In fact, I would say what the Supreme Court is in the process of doing in America is creating a state religion of Marxism. Uh, the philosophers call it dialectical materialism. And it's the notion that all that matters is matter. There is no supernatural force. There's just naturalistic material forces. And they self-organize. And then whoever's at the top of the power chain of humanity determines what that means and imposes order on everybody else, which is a form of man worship. And what we're doing is we're just reinstituting emperor worship, which is always the order of things in all humanity. But this time it's in the name of not having worship and not having religion, even though we have worship and religion. So that's what's going on. The Bible has no such notion. How many times do you think the word hell, or the Old Testament version, which is Sheol, how many times do you think those words occurs in the Bible? Any guess? So 61, by the particular count I did. I'm sure different translations you would get different accounts. 61. That's a little bit less than the number of books in the Bible. The word govern or government is in there about the same number of times, about 60. But govern and government is not the predominant way relating to citizens and organizing of it. It's spoken in the Bible. It's usually king, kingdom, or kings. How many times do you think king, kingdom, or kings is stated in the Bible? Any guess? Thousands, it is. It's over 2,500 times. So hell, 61. King, kingdoms, 2,500. If you ask somebody, what's the Bible mainly about in our culture, what would they say? Probably heaven and hell. Uh, Heaven is in there a few times too. But almost always it's like God made the heavens and the earth. But government is in here from start to finish. Jesus or Christ is 1,300 times. Death, life, 850 times. Humanity or mankind, 2,000 times. So if we just look at word count, the Bible is about citizens of the world or citizens in a location and how they interact with their king or their kingdom in large part and how and why they ought to do this. 
So God has a lot to say about how we organize ourselves and upon which basis, what basis we should do it. Let's just look at one aspect of kings and kingdoms. Because you're thinking to yourself probably, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. Well, I would say, so what? But it's the Bible. It's something God cares deeply about. It's an integral part of Scripture. But let's just look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to focus on verse 17, but let me just review what's happened up to 4.17. Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist, and then he's been led into the wilderness to be tempted. And then in verse 12, he hears that John the Baptist has been put in prison. So he departs from the area of Judea, where now persecution of the way has begun. And he departs to the Galilee region. So now he's inaugurated his mission. He's been baptized. He's been tempted. He inaugurates his mission. And this is how his mission is described in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus went out and he put together a campaign. A campaign to influence people to organize themselves according to a set of spiritual principles relating to His kingdom and His kingdom platform. And who's the king of His kingdom? He is. He's the king. You've got God the king of the universe and Jesus the king of humanity. He tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, but His kingdom will come to this world as we shall see. This whole notion that kingdoms matter and God deeply cares how we organize ourselves is incredibly consistent with the whole rest of Scripture. When God created man in Genesis 1 through 3, He said, Be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth. Take care of it. Keep it. That's what we're supposed to do. That's described in Psalm 8 when the psalmist says, Man was crowned with the glory and honor of having all creation underneath him. Because of the fall, of course, that's not happening the way it's supposed to be. And Hebrews 2 describes that. It quotes Psalm 8 and says, Man is supposed to be crowned with glory and honor, but that's not what we see right now. But we do see one thing. Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of His suffering. Well, let's look at Daniel chapter 2. And we can look at some more instances where we have some real stark insights into how God thinks about what's important. And this is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful king in all the earth at this point in time. And he has one of the most godly, influential, amazing men in all the Bible. A man of whom God says in Ezekiel, you know, you are so bad now, Israel, you're so bad that even if these three men were alive, Noah, Job, and Daniel, I still wouldn't save you, I'd just save those three guys. That's how bad you are. That's pretty good to be in the top three, isn't it? So he's an awesome guy, and he's a bureaucrat in a corrupt administration. A worldly corrupt administration. That's his job. He's not a missionary. He's not a preacher. He's not a theologian. He's a tax-collecting bureaucrat. That's what Daniel is. Daniel is also an advisor to the king. So the king has a dream. And he can't figure out what the dream means. And he's really perplexed about it. So he brings in his advisors and says, Tell me what the dream is and what it means. 
and the advisors say, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. He says, no, 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 I've had enough of your uh, you making stuff up. I'll know if your interpretation's right, if you can tell me what the dream is. And they said, we can, nobody can do that. He says, well, then I'm going to wipe all of you out. I'm going to put you all on the gallows and start over with a new set of advisors. And Daniel says, give me a day or two. So he says, okay, I'll put things on hold. He goes and asks God and says, I'm in a bind here. Uh, Can you help? And God tells him what the dream is and what the interpretation is. And this is the dream. Verse 36, he says, this is the dream. Daniel chapter 2. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. So he told him the dream. Here's the interpretation. You are king or a king of kings. Biggest king of the earth. Why? The God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. That's interesting and important. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. He saw in this dream a statue with a head of gold. Well, you, your kingdom, Babylon, is the head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. The the silver kingdom is the Medes and Persians, and then the bronze kingdom is Greece. And this is made clear throughout Daniel in multiple dreams and explanations. In fact, it's so clear that liberal theologians have said Daniel couldn't have been written when it claims to be written because it's so accurate. In fact, this was a dominant view until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and then they just had to stop talking about it. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, and as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. And this is Rome, the Roman Empire, which is the era we're still in. We are still part of Rome. And if you'll think about it, Rome never fell. It just shattered into pieces. And it keeps reassembling itself in different parts and then reshattering. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, this kingdom shall be divided. We had an eastern and western Roman Empire. And now we have Europe and America and Russia and all the parts that were the Roman Empire. And it keeps dividing and shattering and, and reassembling itself. But when there's a war, massive destruction happens. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, these rulers, these authorities, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So you've got these four kingdoms set up by men, authorized by God, and then it's going to come in a kingdom that God's going to set up Himself. And the kingdom shall be not left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these other kingdoms. In the dream, there was this rock not made by man, and the rock comes down and shatters the statue, and the statue just gets obliterated, and the rock grows into a mountain that fills all the earth. Well, that's God's kingdom coming in and supplanting the kingdom of men. Well, how does that happen? In John, Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. So how does this take place? Well, it takes place in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, Jesus comes in on a white horse from heaven with his army 
and wipes out the armies that are opposing him and then sets up his kingdom on earth. And it's interesting, he tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight for me. The way Pilate would have understood that, grab up a sword and and fight. And in fact, until the very night of his crucifixion, that is exactly what his followers, his disciples, expected to do. That's why Peter grabbed his sword and launched into a whole file of military men by himself. One on a hundred, no problem. Here I go. And he had told Jesus, look, I'm willing to die. And he was. We know definitively he was. One against a hundred, you're wanting to die, right? And he cuts off the one guy's ear and Jesus says, hey, stop that. Put away your sword. Heals the guy's ear. Submits to arrest. Now suddenly they're totally confused. They thought they were going to die in a political uprising. And Jesus says, no, no, not now. That's not what happens now. Because why did Jesus come? He came to serve. Look at Matthew 20, verse 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's son. So here are these guys, these political guys who have joined this campaign and they want to be one of Jesus' followers and they want to be part of the uprising. One of them is actually a zealot, which is Simon the Zealot. The Zealots are the guys who are formerly a part of the group who are creating an armed uprising against Rome. Their headquarters is just a few miles down the valley from Capernaum, which is where Jesus' headquarters are. And this is the sentiment of the area. And all the disciples are sympathetic with this view. In fact, the main reason Jesus chose these twelve was not because of their wisdom and lucidity, as we can see from their behavior. It's because they're willing to fight and die. And so these guys care about politics. So they get their mom involved. Which is what you always do in politics. (laughs) Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him, Jesus, with her sons kneeling down and asking something from him. He said, what do you want? She said, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left, in your kingdom. See, if you can't make progress on your own merits, get mom involved. But Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink and be baptized? Baptized just means immerse. The translators couldn't figure out how to translate it because some guys had sprinkle and not immerse, so they just invented a new word. So that's why it's confusing because this is immerse, be completely consumed within the thing that I'm about to be consumed in, which of course he's talking about his death. And they said, oh yes, we're able. Yeah, uh, yep. Yeah, Yeah, oh no, no, no sweat. So he said to them, well, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right and left hand is not mine to give, but it's for those whom prepared for by the Father. So this is actually not mine to give. And then the ten heard it, and they were greatly displeased. Now why would they be greatly displeased? Could be several reasons. One is, they didn't think of it. (laughs) God, I wish I would have got my mom involved. <laughs> More than likely, the main reason they're displeased is because they want to sit on the right and left hand. But Jesus called them to Himself and said, let me explain this to you. You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them. This word lord over means to coerce 
to create a circumstance where I can control you. Well, that just pretty well describes politics in human history, doesn't it? Uh, The Marxists say, ultimately, all power comes at the point of a gun. Why do they say that? Because they don't believe in the real ultimate power. They say that ultimate power doesn't exist and they're grabbing it for themselves. No, the ultimate power comes by the Word of God. It's where the ultimate power comes from. He says, you know, the Gentiles lord it over them and those who have great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great, which is how many do we know of the twelve desire to become great now? Definitively, from just this passage. How many? Twelve out of twelve, right? And this doesn't mean like great character. It means great position. But Jesus says that there's a path to that. And I'm for it. Okay, Jesus, I'm for you being great. I want you to have a great position. Here's how you get there. Serve other people sacrificially. Now, do you think these people understand this when, they, when He tells them that? It's just poo, right over their head. But they do come to understand it. In fact, Jesus says, you are going to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with because all of them died for their testimony of faith serving, except Judas, who was replaced. Whoever desires to be first among you, like these two guys, you know, I want to be first among the twelve, let him be your slave. Now, I would be interested to know how long it took for them to agree that mom would just ask one on the right, one on the left, and leave that up to Jesus and not which one on the right and which one on the left. Maybe this was something that they wanted to do a year earlier, but they just couldn't work that part of it out. But no, he says, whoever wants to be first among you, let him be your servant, your slave, the one who serves the best interest of others, even children. So my kingdom is not of this world is because the way the world operates is not the way I want you, my followers, to operate, Jesus is saying. Well, what does Jesus want us to do? Look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 20 and then rewind back to chapter 2. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship. So this is citizenship now. We saw that the definition of politics is of or relating to citizens and how they influence and interact with one another. Well, we are all citizens of the heavenly realm. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for our king to come to earth and bring our kingdom to earth and make it manifest on earth. That's what we're waiting for. So while we're citizens in heaven, what are we supposed to be doing here on earth? Well, if you rewind back to chapter 2, you can see this whole flow of things. And if we look at chapter 2, verse 5, we can see we're supposed to have the same mentality Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He spent His time on earth preaching and influencing people to follow the kingdom, to be a part of the kingdom. 
So look at 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. In other words, he's in heaven. He's the creator of the universe. Through him all things were made. For him were all things were made. And he said, I'm willing to leave here and go serve a bunch of people who have rebelled against us because they need me to and because you asked me to. The Father asked him to. So he's willing to do this. And he takes on the form of a bondservant, a person. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself. So here's the creator of the universe. You can't get any more powerful than that. Coming and humbling himself by becoming a person. And became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he did what his father asked him to do in order to save humanity. But the reason he came is because he was asked to do it. He did it out of obedience. And because he lived a life doing what God asked him to do, therefore God also has highly exalted him and giving him the name which is above every name. God implanted us with a desire to be great. All of us. And he's also given us a path to do so. And that path is through sacrificial service to other people. Setting ourselves aside, dying daily, and walking in the newness of life, serving others. That at the name of Jesus every name shall bow. So this is how we bring God's kingdom to earth, is walking at a citizen of heaven and following Jesus' serving platform instead of the world's lording over platform. That's, this is how we do it. And this is how politics and religion mix from a godly standpoint versus how they mix from a worldly and secular standpoint. Now, to the extent we bring our serving orientation into the sphere of man, it makes an enormous influence. America was founded based on biblical principles. The Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law founded the basis of English common law. English common law is the system that was brought over to America and and forms the basis of everything we do. There's a Supreme Court case, and this is not an an outlier. There's a Supreme Court case from the 1890s called the United States versus Holy Trinity Church or vice versa. And it says in there, after it cites all these different founding principles of why Connecticut was founded, the Constitution state, why the other... Uh, states were founded, why the Mayflower Compact, its basis for why it was founded, they're all in order to spread the gospel and take Christianity to other places and live a, a life unto God. And then it makes this conclusion, we are a Christian nation. And it actually finds that you can't apply a law to a church that might impede the gospel because we're a Christian nation. Well, we come a little distance from that now, if you've, if you've noticed. But the idea of public servant is a kind of a unique American idea. The idea of the king should serve the people would be unthinkable in virtually every other era of human history. The king and the Holy Roman Empire, let's say, which lasted until the late 1800s, they disbanded it so Napoleon couldn't get it. The Holy Roman Empire was formed on the basis of the divine right of kings. God tells the Pope, the Pope tells the king, you can speak on behalf of God, now this king can tell people what to do. Uh, the idea that now the king is under law and the king is serving you, that's kind of a late coming thing. It, we have it all the way back in the Magna Carta, but it really didn't take root until America. So we are to 
live as citizens in this world using kingdom principles and put them into practice. You know, the Bible never calls us to be a majority. It never calls us to be in power. It does call us to be salt. And what salt does is it preserves. A little bit preserves the whole. What salt does is it makes something edible so that it pleases the eater. We're called to be a sacrifice that is pleasing. And that sacrifice has to have salt. We're to be that salt. When we do what we're supposed to do, even if we're rejected by the world, which pretty much will always be the case because the world lords it over, we can actually preserve a whole society by bringing our biblical practices onto the playing field. Well, let me use the few remaining minutes to just introduce what we're going to go into in some depth over the succeeding weeks and talk about what is a biblical form of government and where does it come from. Let me just look at a couple of passages. One is Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 is where God institutes human government as we know it. Before I talk about this specific passage where God institutes human government, let me talk about the basic uh, application of government as God encourages us to apply it throughout Scripture. There are two basic notions of government that God elevates as ideal. One is self-governance, and the other is a kingdom with a perfect king. Now, which one's better? The kingdom with a perfect king is ideal. But the next best thing while we're waiting for that is self-governance. And this this basic principle runs all the way through Scripture. Self-governance is a system of governance whereby people interact with one another voluntarily and constructively. Remember, politics is the way we organize principles around citizens interact with one another. Well, when we have a worldview that says love your neighbors yourself and we really abide by that worldview, that is the most constructive way to have a government. When God instituted self-governance, He actually started it in the Garden of Eden. Self-governance has three pillars in my construction that I'm advocating. One is rule of law. A second is dispersed decision-making with consent of the governed. With the consent of the governed. And the third is private property ownership. You could just say two because private property is embedded in the rule of law the way God talks about it. But it's such an important part of it, I'll go ahead and separate it out. Rule of law, dispersed decision-making with consent of the governed, and private property. Well, in the Garden of Eden, God starts with one of those. Which pillar does he start right off the bat? Rule of law, yeah. And how many how many rules does he make? Just one. Starts with just one, which is kind of fascinating if you think about it. He just started with one. Why doesn't he do dispersed decision making? There's only one person. Yeah, that's right. There's, the, there's no no need for that at that point. How about private property? It wouldn't make any sense, would it? Really? Don't don't take other people. Oh, there. Are, oh, wait a minute. There aren't other people at this point. Okay, so he starts with rule of law. Now, of course, that falls. All kinds of bad stuff happens after we break the rule of law. And then God comes in and says, uh, okay, what I want you to do is scatter out over the earth. And what happens is the earth fills with violence, which is exactly the opposite of what 
self-governance is. If we follow God's rule of law, or God's rule of law, you love your neighbor. Well, the opposite of loving your neighbor is violence. And the earth fills with violence. So he destroys the earth. And after he destroys the earth, he makes some promises here in Genesis chapter 9. And this is new. In 9 verse 5, he says, Surely your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Now this is something new. When Cain killed Abel, what was Cain's punishment? Was he killed? He was exiled from being a farmer. And he's like, oh man, I can't be exiled from being a farmer from my land. I'm going to get killed by somebody. They're going to find out about it. And God says, I'll put this mark of protection on you so you won't get killed. And then a little later, Lamech, who's the first guy to have two wives apparently, says to his wives, I killed a guy for hurting me, for injuring me. Okay, So now we go, you injure me, I kill you. Is that proportional? It's not proportional. You know, the biblical notion is proportionality. Eye, eye, tooth, tooth. It's proportional, not eye for tooth. Tooth is you know, hurtful, but not that big a deal, right? Eye is a big deal. So non-proportional retribution. And he says, if Cain had a, um, I think it was a seven times, I'll, I'll heap on you seven times if you hurt Cain. For me, it should be 70. So now he's making his own laws and justifying his own behavior to be violent. And apparently this is one of the reasons violent filled the earth. Well, now we had to destroy the earth because of violence filled it. And so now God says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give moral authority to mankind to take life. So, as is always the case, Marxism is built on elements of truth. Power does come at the end of a gun, but only because God authorized it. Only because God says, I'm giving you moral authority to take life. And if you'll look back in human history and look at what has transpired, what you'll see running through all of human history is kings or rulers trying to grab moral authority and use it immorally. That's what they're always trying to do. And they want power and lording over, but they want moral high ground to go with it. Well, the reason is because they're tapping into this. Because God has given moral authority to man to take life. Why? So the earth won't fill up with violence again. We can end with a passage we'll most likely come back to many times. And that's Romans chapter 13, which is the New Testament definitive passage on government. And it starts with, let every life... Be subject to the governing authorities. Why? There's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, this is particularly important for us because unlike most other countries in all of human history, unlike most other organizations of people, In all of human history, our country is constitutional. And what are the first words in our Constitution? We the people. The constitutional authority in our system of government is us. 
so when under Romans 13, our government does evil instead of good because God gave government for good. So when it does evil, whose job is it and whose responsibility is it to do something about it? We the people. Now, it may be that we stand up and do what we can and it still goes another way. Fine. That we do our responsibility. God's in, ch- in control. But He makes a promise in Chronicles that I think still exists today. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray, I'll heal their land. Because salt is salty. I'll end with this. The church is probably, and I can't speak for God, but the church is probably under judgment right now because persecution is coming upon us. And arguably the reason why is because we have abdicated the field. In America, the whole idea of hospitalization and hospitals and organized health care, where did that come from? The church. You go look at hospitals, the vestige of it still around. It's Saint this and Saint that and Methodist this and Presbyterian that. We invented it all. Who runs it now? If you look at universities, you know the first university in America was Harvard. It was founded, if I remember correctly, in 1635. The pilgrims came over in 1620. Half of them died the first year. And 15 years later, they form a university out of their poverty. And why? They tell us why. They tell us why. It was because they were so committed to raising a generation of Christian leaders so that their children wouldn't go astray and and veer from the gospel. So they started a university and they used John Harvard's library to start it and that's where the name came from. The university system was founded by Christians. Where is it today? We heard a story from a a young person that went to uh, interview at Texas Christian. And Texas Christian may have all kinds of great Christian influences. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not making a universal statement about it. But this particular counselor emphasized to this student who was interviewing, we're not really a Christian university. I just need to get that across. Okay, It's in our name, but we're not really a Christian university. You understand that? We're not really a Christian It's in our name It's we're Christian, but I just want you to understand we're not really Christian. Trying to remove the obstacle, you know, that Christianity is to coming into a university. And, you know, Marxism has basically taken over our universities. We abdicated this field. We invented it. We built it up. And then we abdicated. Well, there's a price to be paid for that. It's going to fall on us. But it's a great opportunity. Because we're not called to be in control. We're not called to run the government. We're not supposed to lord over. If, we're, if we are elected or not elected, it doesn't matter. What does matter is that we take these kingdom principles and live them every day, including in the area of citizenship. Citizenship in two places. Heaven, most importantly, that we have this mind, which was also in Christ Jesus, that we walk in obedience. That's number one. But number two, if we walk in obedience just in our devotional time or just internally and don't actually put it in practice in business, in family, in in government, in politics, in every area of life, what good is it? Is that what Jesus did? No. Jesus took His spiritual command from God and put shoe leather to it 
and walked out and influenced people and died for it. Right now, we do not see man crowned with glory and honor and subduing nature in perfect harmony with one another and with nature. We don't see that right now. But you know what we do see? Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor for the suffering of glory. And that is His call to us, to follow Him in that. So in this series, we're going to be looking in depth in how does all this interrelate? How does government and politics... What does God tell us about this? We're going to be looking at self-governance and when it's been applied and what takes place and when it hasn't been applied and what takes place. And I think you're going to be fascinated by it. And I know the kind of the current emphasis in our era is kind of personal spiritual growth. Well, that's fine. That's where it starts. We're going to get plenty of that. But what we're going to be looking at is practically what does that look like when you're interacting with other humans? Which is, as we know, the definition of politics. Very good. God, thank you for your wonderful grace, all this amazing instruction you've given us. Help us not silo any of it away so that all of us changes our life and we become the salt you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.